0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and I am really scared of a hand coming out of the wall and poking me.
1: (laughs) I am Caitlin, and I am really scared of finding an axe murderer in my backseat.
2: I'm Cameron, and I'm really scared of talking about what I'm scared about in a public forum.
3: I'm Dan, and I'm really scared of Aaliyah dodging out of the way when I reach out of the wall to try to grab her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew it was coming. Today is the day. <laughs> well, as you've realized by now, we have a wonderful guest on. Dan Wells is joining us. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Partial series, the I Am Not a Serial Killer series, the Mirador series, and many other books. He is also a co-host of the Hugo Award winning podcast, Writing Excuses. And he just had a very exciting book come out. Uh, Dan, will you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yes, I will. It is called Zero G. It is the first book of a middle grade science fiction series. Just came out on Friday. It is really cool. It's an audio exclusive, audible exclusive, in fact. And so for the first year, there is no print version. We've done it as a full cast audio drama with music and special effects. And there's like 10 different narrators and readers and things in it. The basic pitch is Home Alone in Space. There's a colony headed off to another star that's 20 light years away. It's going to take them 100 years to get there. So they all go to sleep in little stasis pods. And then a 12-year-old boy wakes up partway through and realizes he's the only one awake. Pirates are trying to hijack the ship, and he has to stop them by himself.
0: That sounds cool. That sounds fantastic.
3: It's very cool. It is right now currently the seventh best-selling book on Audible in every category. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple days ago, I was number four, I was actually the third bestseller for a while. I was beating Michelle Obama, which was (laughs) really exciting for me. I haven't beaten Alan Arkin yet, though. That's the goal. Everyone go buy it so that I can say that I sold better than Alan Arkin.
1: Zero G. Everyone go get it.
3: Oh, and I should mention, it's currently free. If you're an Audible (laughs) member, then during December, you can actually get it for free. It's one of their uh, Audible Originals special selections. So go and grab it for absolutely zero dollars.
1: Awesome.
0: Very nice. What a good Christmas present. So we're excited to talk about horror today with Dan. Uh, We wanted to start with a quick question, and Dan, this is just for you.
1: Because you're the expert.
0: (laughs) uh, What makes something a horror genre rather than having elements of horror? And what would you call a horror element?
3: Those are two very big questions. Well, feel free to
1: answer them in very short sentences. (laughs) 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 Let's
3: go with the first one first. What makes something a horror book rather than a book that has horror elements in it. Um, By the way, dear listeners, we are going to mispronounce the word horror a lot, or we're going to overpronounce the word horror a lot throughout (laughs) this entire podcast. Uh, When I first started and told my family that I was a special guest at the World Horror Convention, they uh, had some questions. So I'm going to enunciate that second or a lot. The way you can tell that something, at least the way that I divide them in my head, is that a book can have horror elements in it, but say something is is actually fantasy or urban fantasy or even science fiction or just thriller, what looks like defeat can actually still be turned into success. Whereas if something is really, truly a horror story, then even success is actually a defeat of some kind. And you will see this a lot, um, not just with slasher movies, which is what most people think of when they hear the word horror, but uh, any kind of ghost story, any kind of out-and-out horror movie or book, novel, whatever, you get to the end. And if one or more of the heroes has actually managed to live through it and kill the monster or whatever, they're still broken in some way. They're still damaged or uh, they have just outright cannot win, even when it looks like they can They kill the monster, but they're completely insane now for the rest of their lives. Something along those lines. That, for me, is what really separates the horror genre from just scary fiction.
1: Do you have a preference for main character wins, but is broken, versus the monster wins? (laughs)
3: Yes. (laughs) I I, I love breaking characters. That's my favorite thing to do, is ruining some poor imaginary person's life. Because that's the best way to ruin the reader's life, right? (laughs) You get to the end of a story, and if the monster wins, like just completely wins, then what you've really done, I guess, is a tragedy. And I do love doing tragedies. In horror, really what I like to see is that main character that we've been rooting for, that's gone through hell, that's done everything they can. Sure, maybe they win, but the cost was so high
0: it's the outcome that determines whether it is horror or just a book with horror elements in it
3: i think that that is a broad way of looking at it um obviously there's other definitions um two of my favorite ones uh stephen king said that horror is the girl next door hiding under a table clutching a knife you know she's never going to be able to use I don't know how broadly applicable that is, but I love it as a definition. (laughs) And then Anne Radcliffe, who was writing gothic horror, uh, kind of a contemporary of Jane Austen, she talked about uh, the difference between fear and dread. And this is also something that I use when I'm trying to define horror to myself. She said that fear is when you think something bad is going to happen and you're worried that it will. But dread, or horror is when something bad has already happened and now you have to live with it. Which I think really ties into my other definition I gave, that the ending looks like a success, but it's really a failure of some kind. It it has left you broken. It has changed your world in some way that you can never go back.
0: So I guess with that in mind, none of us here are exclusively horror writers, but when would you say we should be adding in horror elements into our writing and and to what purpose? Where's the line where... We cross the boundaries.
1: When is it just adding, like, scary stuff versus, like, a horror element? Or are those the same thing?
0: Horror elements, we never really got
3: to that question of what horror is. I really think they are kind of this the same thing, that you can just add fear or suspense into something. I'm currently writing the sequel to Zero G and was maybe just in a really dark mood that day, but I had this little scene in the outline that I was writing that was kind of suspenseful, and I realized as I was writing it that I had gone full horror on it and it was like terrifying. And I had to dial it back and go, wait, this is a book for like 10 year old. It's a middle grade novel. I probably should not open this faucet all the way. And so I had to dial that back. But I do think that horror as an element is valuable regardless Of the genre that you're writing in, whether it is, you know, and there's some that are obvious. If you're writing a fantasy or a thriller, it's very easy to throw those horror elements in there. But even if you're writing romance, for example, the idea that the person that you love the most in all the world does not love you back and you'll be alone forever, that's horrific. That's horror. And so you can use that kind of stuff, whether it is a scene of tension or just a scene of despair, or a scene of confronting, as we said earlier, that idea that something awful has already happened and now you just have to live with it. That can be included profitably, I think, in any story, regardless of the genre.
1: When we were talking about this, everybody's going after my no-horror-in-genre-romance comment. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. I'm okay with arguing with everybody. I think that that if we're going with the definition of dread... I think that that's definitely true, especially in, in genre romance. Cause that's like where most of the tension is, is, is this isn't going to work out. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like, I yeah. see that it's not going to, and that's how you feel through that whole part. Yeah.
0: Well, Kirsten yeah. had a great example of Maggie Stiefwater's books, um, The Raven Boys. The main character in that has this curse that when she kisses her true love, He will die. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole book that kind of casts a shadow over, and she's terrified of falling in love. And I mean, that's a kind of that dread we were talking about comes in there.
1: She's, yeah, yeah, terrified that she'll have to love somebody because then they'll die. I guess she could just not kiss them, I suppose.
0: So, adult versus. That's terrifying for a teenager. So adult versus YA versus middle grade, where would you say the boundaries are? How much is too much horror um, for middle grade or vice versa?
1: Yeah, you were just talking about
0: dialing it back.
2: What was it about (laughs) that scene that made you think that was too far for that book? If you can tell
3: us. Well, let's see. Okay, so the first book, as I explained earlier, is about them on a ship heading to another planet that they're intending to colonize. The second book is about them. They've arrived there. And then, whereas the first one's kind of home alone in space, the second one is kind of like hatchet in space. Like, the the kid gets stuck out in the the wilderness of this alien planet that's unexplored and and has to kind of figure out how to survive and get to the colony. And I had a scene where there were these alien creatures that he was scared of, but they end up helping him. So he's going down and he, he doesn't know what these creatures eat, he doesn't know if they're poisonous, he doesn't know if they're going to attack or if they're territorial or what, and so he has to go down into the field and then across the field, and he ends up actually falling down into one of their burrows underground, and he's confronted with a bunch of them there, and there's a way to do that that adds tension to the scene and that adds suspense to the scene, but there's a way to go way over the top and just really ramp it up. And I don't know exactly how to define this, but as I was writing, I just kept thinking of my 10-year-old boy and thinking, at what point am I going to be giving him nightmares rather <laughs> than just making him excited to see what happens? And I I do think I crossed that line into nightmares. I had, you know, painted these creatures as such terrifying mysteries that the tension was just too high. And so I had to kind of dial that back and let them be kind of cool alien creatures that were slightly scary rather than, oh my gosh, literally anything could happen now and I'm about to get eaten by them. Mm-hmm. And so, and obviously that line is going to be different for every reader and there's no solid line where you can look at it and go, okay, this is obviously the middle grade, but if you bumped it up by one word, it would be YA all of a sudden. Another one of my favorite horror anecdotes is Neil Gaiman, years and years ago, was on the Colbert report because he had his new book, The Graveyard Book. And Stephen Colbert read out loud the first sentence of the book, which is a hand in the darkness clutched a knife. Something along those lines. And he stopped and he looked at Gaiman and he was like, what? This is a really dark, scary opening for a kid's book. Whatever happened to Peter Rabbit? Gaiman had a very nice diplomatic answer. I was shouting at the screen, you moron, have you ever read Peter Rabbit? It's a story of you know a wayward child from a dysfunctional home who is breaking into his neighbor's house and the neighbor's trying to catch him and kill him and eat him. (laughs) Kids can handle a lot more fear than we think they can. There's a reason that fairy tales are so gruesome and so horrific. It's because kids kind of dig that stuff. And horror is a tool that children use to encounter scary situations without actually being in danger. And so I would be cautious about dialing your horror too far back when you're writing for children, because they can usually handle a lot more than we think they can. One of Neil Gaiman's actual answers that he gave in that interview was he has had many, many parents write him to complain that his books are too dark for children, but he's never once had a kid write to him to complain that the book was too dark.
1: You know, this is something I've been thinking about a little bit because I am revising a middle grade book. And um, some freaking horrifying
3: things
2: in that <laughs> I know.
1: And actually, it's kind of funny. I was practicing writing horror elements when I was first drafting it, I think after listening to you talk about it, Dan. And I, I made it way too scary. So as I was writing it, I was thinking that the closer I was to the main characters, it's, it's third person, limited, and it's, it's usually pretty far back because it's middle grade. But the closer I got to the main character... And the more she was experiencing things like pain and fear and not being able to see things, like the closer I was to her character, the scarier it was. And you can argue with me if you want. But I was just thinking that horror a lot of times or fear is how close you are to the character and if you're experiencing the scary stuff along with them rather than watching them experience it.
3: Yeah, I think that is a... A good way to think about it, and and with middle grade in particular, it's it's a tricky line to walk. I think with YA, honestly, with young adult, go as dark as you want.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> um, true. It done.
3: You look at you look at books like Polly Black uh, and mm-hmm. some of her stuff. That is every bit as dark as adult horror is. It is maybe slightly less gory, but she's not pulling her punches. With middle grade, I think that that we do have a responsibility to. If if to no one else, than to the parents who don't want to be up all night with screaming children (laughs) who can't sleep. But yeah, with with teens, just go nuts. Freak them out.
0: All right. We are free now. I guess then for our last question tonight, we'd like to discuss a little bit about how to write horror. Just in its basics, how do you create a frightening experience using words? For instance, is a a book jump scare possible?
3: Ooh, a jump scare? So when... One of my friends read I Am Not a Serial Killer. She lived in Oak City at the time, which is this tiny little town in central Utah. Her family was out of town camping, and she was home alone. And right as she got to the first scene with the monster killing someone, which is in chapter, I don't know, in the middle somewhere, her power went out. (laughs) (laughs) exactly at the right moment. And I've always wanted to figure out how can I do like a localized EMP blast, like (laughs) holiday cards where you open them up and then they sing jingle bells or whatever. Like if I could do that, return the page of the book and all of a sudden, boom, it knocks out your lights. That would be great. But outside of that, I don't know if you could do a jump scare in a book. It relies on a very different kind of. And a different kind of horror.
1: See, I feel like I've experienced it before. I mean, not like, it's probably not a jump out of my seat jump scare. There's one that just came out this year by Stephanie Perkins, who originally wrote, what was it, Anna and the French Kiss? That's what she's famous for. And then she wrote a horror book called There's Someone Inside Your House. And the opening scene, spoilers here, she does a really, really good job of using her language. I mean, in books, we don't have, like, the scary music and, and then the things jumping out, you know, which is which are a lot of the reasons you have a jump scare in a movie. But in her book, she did a really good job of just taking the situation out of the character's control, and you as a reader knew more what was going on than than the main character did. What it is, is there's this girl who's in her house, and things keep moving around, and she's kind of brushing it off, but you as a reader are like, she's, She's talking about like this school play that has blood and gore and stuff. So she's setting the tone, first of all. And then there's this egg timer that starts out on her front porch and then it moves into her house and then it moves up the stairs. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night and it's right in front of her and goes off. And it's really scary. <laughs> like I couldn't sleep. And it's just a silly YA book. I mean, not silly. I love YA. I write YA. It was about as close to a jump scare as I've ever had in a book before.
3: That's awesome. Yeah, I can actually think of a couple of times when I literally have jumped out of my chair. One of them was a George R.R. R. Martin novella. It's a science fiction horror he wrote called Sand Kings, which is about uh, a guy who buys, it's, it's like an interstellar society, so there's alien creatures and he, He goes to buy a pet, and what he buys is basically an aquarium full of these little insect kind of things that worship you. They're just intelligent enough to imprint on you and then worship you as a god, and he thought that would be a cool pet to have. And uh, it gets increasingly creepier and creepier, and then there's an accident, and the aquarium glass breaks, and these things spill out all over the floor into his house. And right when I was reading that something brushed my foot and I did literally <laughs> jump right out of my chair. And so, yet yeah, that's kind of like, you know, the ha-ha, the lights went out in my friend's house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was able to bring me to the point where literally any stimulus at all freaked me right out. And so I, you know, it didn't have to be something brushing my foot. It could have been anything else. I was already in that state of panic and and jumped out of the chair. So, yeah, it's probably possible.
1: So how do you do that with language? How do you how do you get someone to that point?
3: If I knew that, I would be a <laughs> lot richer than I am. I actually teach a class on how to write suspense, on how to scare people. The basic points that I go through, the first one is that you need to establish what normal is, right? We need to know what is real and and what is abnormal, what is out of the ordinary. When I was five years old, right before I started kindergarten, my grandmother took me to see E.T., the extraterrestrial. And my grandma is late to everything, and or she was at the time. And so we got there about 10 minutes into it. And so the movie starts by showing you, hey, look at these cute little aliens out in the woods. They're, they're planting trees and they're picking flowers and stuff. And it establishes Normal means the aliens are nice. We got there late, and so we got there when the alien was in the little boy's shed in the backyard. <laughs> and that then says normal is the little boy in his house, and there's something weird in the shed. And so it's very important when you're setting out to scare somebody that you make sure you let us know what is normal and what is out of the ordinary so that we know what to be afraid of. Because in in E.T., you're not supposed to be afraid of the alien, and I was terrified of him for the rest of my life. (laughs) Point number two is to make familiar things become unfamiliar. This is the reason why most of our kind of archetypal cultural monsters, zombies and werewolves and vampires and stuff, they're all just humans that aren't acting like humans anymore. And it's because it's something we thought that we understood and we thought that we could trust it, but now it is behaving in a totally different way, and that freaks us out. That is why people get freaked out by, you know, dolls, for example, that move by themselves. Or even just, you know, it looks like the face on the painting on the wall, is its eyes are following you or something. That's not inherently scary. A painting can't hurt you, but... You thought you understood what a painting could and could not do, and now it's doing something it can't do, and that suggests then a hundred other possibilities. Well, what else can this painting do that I don't understand? And so that freaks us out. This is a a similar principle to, like, the uncanny valley, which you hear a lot with art and with robotics, where something is almost human but not quite, and then it becomes incredibly disturbing. And it's because it's become familiar enough that all of its unfamiliarities stand out that much more and it feels very wrong to us. And so when you see like bad CGI or something like that, sometimes it just looks dumb. But if it's good enough, it will look creepy instead of stupid. And that's why it's this principle of familiar things becoming unfamiliar. That's why The Um, Polar
1: Express is the worst horror movie ever. (laughs) Yes.
3: Polar Express is such a great example of the uncanny valley. It's this constant parade of soulless automatons the third principle that i tell people is to draw time out alfred hitchcock has a fantastic quote where if you're filming a movie and there's a bomb under the table and it explodes that's passion but if there's a bomb under the table and the characters talk about baseball that's suspense Mm -hmm. and the reason is first of all we as the audience have to know the bombs there right we have to establish our, our parameters first But once we know the bomb is there, we know what the stakes are, and then nothing happens, the longer that scene goes on, the more we're waiting for that bomb to go off. So making people wait for it, I think, is really important to horror because it gives us time to let our imagination run. Even if we're not escalating in our heads, you're not giving us that release. You're not giving us a chance to calm down, and that can be very frightening. Point number four when I teach this class is... Pushing fear buttons, and this is just kind of a simple one, because sometimes you need to do a lot of sneaky tricks, but sometimes all you need is a spider, right? (laughs) People are afraid of things, and a lot of people are afraid of very similar things, and it's very easy to just kind of use those to ramp up the suspense that you're already doing. If we were to boil this principle down to one or two main ideas, what we are most afraid of as adults is vulnerability. Right? We are in positions of power. We know that we are in charge. We are the masters of our fate. And when you take that away, when we are, like, for example, we're not afraid of the dark. We're afraid of not being able to see. We're not afraid of sticky things. We're afraid of things that make it hard to move. Vulnerabilities, whether it's just that we're alone or we're trapped or we can't see or we can't do whatever it is that we need to do, we can't move. That's what starts to freak people out. Children, on the other hand, if you're writing YA and writing middle grade, those can be frightening. But children often live in a state of relative powerlessness to begin with. They don't have that kind of master of our fate thing that adults have. What tends to frighten a lot of children is power. Uh, I put you into this position where there are no other adults to rely on. There's no teachers. There's no parents. You have to do this on your own. And then all of a sudden they have to make decisions. They have to be responsible for those decisions. And that can really freak children out as well. And honestly, that still freaks me out as an adult sometimes. So <laughs> these are not hard Second and fast, you know, delineations between age groups. Giving and taking away power can help put the characters into frightful situations. And that puts the reader into the same mindset if you do it right. And then the fifth principle that I teach is just to show the monster and to be careful how you show the monster. For example, in Jaws, which is the best movie ever made, um, (laughs) they couldn't get the shark puppet robot thing to work. And so they had to change almost all of their action scenes to include things that suggested a shark rather than showing the shark. And it ended up being 10 times more artistic and like 100 times more frightening because it is allowing your brain to do all of the work. Instead of looking at a puppet that kind of sort of looks like a shark, you're looking at, you know, a barrel on the water, and you know that there's a shark under it, and so your brain fills in all the gaps and connects all the dots, and you're afraid of a shark, even though there's not a shark on the screen. But you do eventually, in most cases, need to actually show that monster. And again, this doesn't have to be an actual monster. If you're writing, you know, a horror romance, then maybe the, the monster is... Solitude. Maybe the monster is abandonment, something like that. Or maybe the monster is the jerk that gets your loved one instead of you. When you finally show that monster, make sure that our expectations are either exceeded or subverted. You need to go bigger and badder than we thought you were going to go, or you need to go in a different direction altogether. And the easiest and best way to do that is to make sure that you control, you set our expectations for us, early on if we if you tell us what the monster is and then the monster is something different clearly you have to do this in a way where you're not just lying to your readers you're (laughs) establishing expectations let's go back to jaws jaws shows us early in the film what a shark looks like the hunters catch one and they hang it up on the dock and we see it and they talk about how big its teeth are they measure its bite radius it's covered with blood and it's a big scary animal But in our head, then, they have defined for us what shark means, right? They've given a definition to that variable so that in the end of the movie, when we actually see the real shark for the first time, the actual jaws, he's so much bigger. He's not dead. He's not hanging on a thing. He's out in the wild. He is much more powerful. He's much more free. And so it has exceeded our expectations completely. And he does that by establishing them for us in the beginning so that he
0: can break it later on. Thank you. What valuable advice. I know I don't write horror much. Um, so I really appreciate those tips that makes it feel very approachable and very yeah. easy to add in. With that being said, we are good to move on to the critique portion of the podcast. And just a quick review. This is non-prescriptive. We try um, anyway. We try. We try. <laughs> and we try to keep the things we like to about two minutes and the things that might need a second look to about eight minutes. A summary of this week's submission we have a mommy blogger who loves her family a lot, and she seems to have a perfect life. Um, then she gets into a car accident, and later, outside the submission, we find out that she has actually invented this perfect family and is working for a crime organization. Is that right? So that is right.
1: So things we like. I thought that we got a really good feel for who the main character was.
3: We do. Sort of.
1: We know that she really loves her family, and she thinks her husband is awesome.
3: That's All true. Right.
2: I like the intercut snippets at the emergency room. I think, unfortunately, in the version that went around, there was some formatting that made it clear that it was extra scene. I don't think the rest of you saw, but the version I read, it was very clear that it wasn't happening in the same scene as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like the utter- the tension that it added.
0: I feel like there was a realistic family dynamic too. I think we don't always get to see something that's realistic, but I felt this was realistic.
3: I admire... I I think, like, I do a lot of chapter critiques as well through uh, the podcast and through my Patreon and things like that, and what I saw in this one that I don't see in a lot of them is just pure confidence. And that isn't really a writing thing, but it's absolutely a writing career thing, right? We are in, as artists, we are in a career that requires us to have a very thick skin, that requires us to have this kind of Arrogance that somebody is going to want to read my thing. Someone's going to want to spend their time in my head doing all this stuff, reading this book, learning, getting to know these characters. And a lot of people can't make that jump or they wait way too long to make that jump. And they'll say, oh, well, I've written three novels and I've never shown any of them to anybody. And I get the impression that this is a fairly early career writer who is already out there asking for critiques and showing her work to people. And I think that's a really valuable skill. Like people will ask when I go to high schools and stuff, one of the really common questions I get usually from teachers rather than students is, What is the most valuable skill that you have as an author? And they're expecting me to say something like, well, it's dialogue or it's the ability to outline. And really, it's this. It's the ability to set your own goals and pursue them out of the gate without somebody else driving you to do so. This kind of go-getter attitude and, and I guess just confidence, like I said in the beginning. I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this
0: submission. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Very important Um, how about some things that we felt might need a second look? I know for me, I was a little bit confused on the first page what was going on. I think just because we were getting a lot of character names at the same time, and I wasn't fully grounded. So it just suddenly there seemed to be a lot of people in a bed, and I think I could have gotten that if I'd just been a little bit grounded where the main character was a little bit more at the beginning.
1: I actually had a hard time with that and I don't know if formatting would have helped actually because I wasn't sure if it was a flashback or if it was um, a voice she was hearing in her head like I I just I felt like I didn't know how to connect these other parts to what was going on in the main part of the submission I guess.
3: It's very unclear who is talking who everyone is I think it could stand a, a much stronger introduction of, of scene and setting. What she's doing in particular in this first chapter is that she is trying to be a little experimental with point of view, where we're getting these intercuts. And I, I agree with Cameron that the, the italic intercuts with flashbacks or flash forwards are they're one of the best parts. But what it does is it creates a, a sense where it is even harder than usual and it's already difficult in the first scene of a first chapter to introduce the characters and let us know what's going on. And so kind of playing loose with point of view in this way, and especially from starting in a point of confusion, where you're trying to capture this sense of waking up in a bed, not knowing exactly whose arm is in your face, and it turns out it's a little kid. That kind of confusion is, is fun, but it doesn't make it easy for your readers to get into your book. It, it gives it a much higher learning curve than it needs. On top of which... There's a lot of what I would call person errors. It jumps between first and third person a lot, sometimes even inside of the same sentence. And that made it very difficult for me to parse a lot of what was going on. In fact, I have to, I have to apologize to the author. Dear author, I don't know your name. I apologize for this. I, there's actually several pages in this because I read it without knowing exactly what was going on. I I spent several pages thinking that this was a story about someone with multiple personalities or possibly possession, Mm -hmm. because she refers to herself in both the first and the third person so often that I thought it was a completely different genre of story than it actually was.
1: While I didn't get quite to possession, I assumed that it it was a totally different genre than the synopsis suggests. I figured it was going to be contemporary, like maybe chick lit or like, uh, somebody loses their memory and has to figure out how to fit back in with their family or something like that. I, I didn't get supernatural elements at all. Actually. I just, I thought that maybe she was in the hospital later. And, but when we, what we learned from the synopsis was that she's this, she's part of a crime syndicate and that's, that's very different from what I was expecting. And I think that when you're submitting your work to an agent or an editor, one of the most important things, and actually just to a reader, the promises you make in your first chapter are really important because that it it sets up the rest of your book. Your your reader, or whoever it is, needs to be able to see from the first chapter what it is they're getting into. I actually
0: agree with that a lot. I enjoyed as a reader being able to see what this main character's normal was, but I think I also felt just kind of a, a desire to see where it was going because I I assumed that this normal wasn't where she's going to stay, and I just felt like... We lingered in that maybe a, maybe a little bit longer than I thought was necessary.
2: It seemed to me that because while we did get tension from the ER snippets, that the actual scene of the family getting up there just there wasn't any dry there wasn't any conflict mm-hmm. in that part of the scene. So it made me wonder, like, we know we're going somewhere, but we don't know why we're starting here. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense,
1: I, I wasn't sure what the hook that was going to get me to the next chapter was, or what it was supposed to be even.
3: Yeah. Well, the hook at the end of the first chapter is that it ends mid sentence. You want to know. What Why happens? it is a sentence? What, what it, where's the rest of the sentence? i got to start the next chapter to see. Because you're right. There needs to be some kind of tension. And the purpose of these two chapters, and I do agree with Aliyah that it's a little too long. It takes too long to get to that car crash. But the purpose of showing us this early stuff before jumping into the crime syndicate thing is to establish what she what she loses later, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We need to see the family. We need to see how happy they are. We need to go, oh, this is great. So that later, when she loses all of that, it hits us where it hurts. Mm -hmm. I do think there's too much of it, but it's there. And the way to provide conflict inside of that kind of scene, where the whole purpose is to be happy, how can you possibly fit a conflict into there, uh, is to to focus on that. And, And she does this a few times. I think she maybe does it a little too often, actually. Hitting that note saying, is this really true? Like, am I presenting a false life on my blog that isn't really like the life that we have? And I think that is a way, if this author wanted to push a little harder on that and bring it out a little more, that that could add some tension and some conflict to this early scene, especially because it seems like that is going to become a bigger deal later on. Once she, you know, is working for a crime syndicate, once she is kind of a super spy assassin person then that concept of duality and of dual identity and of presenting a false face that is going to be a major theme throughout the book. And I think if we focused on that a little more, I would almost like to see instead of the italic hospital scenes, as awesome as they are, I would kind of like to see snippets of her blog instead Mm
1: -hmm. so that
3: we're getting a sense of that. Mm -hmm. We get a stronger connection of this is, you know, who I am in real life this is my false uh, face that I present on the internet. And then both of them are wiped away and, and she kind of starts over. And again, we're trying to be non-prescriptive with our <laughs> products. And the author knows better than we do how to fix it. But if the author is interested in some tips and advice, there's one for you. That, that could be a cool way to go if it's something you want to do. Because I do think as, as much as I complained about the kind of experimental perspective that I that did not work for me at all, the way she is experimenting with structure and those intercut scenes does work. And so I think leaning on that and maybe going for the blog rather than flashbacks or even mixing all three together could be a direction that could work.
0: Awesome. Great notes. We are out of time for today. But Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I've learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners will learn a ton as well.
3: Oh, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Remember, this is both a video and a
1: podcast. Actually, it's not It's oh. <laughs> a <laughs> <laughs> okay. so video next that. time. So <laughs> I refuse to appear in public. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that
3: taking my photo steals my soul, so I wouldn't let them film me. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well,
0: then, I guess if you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Litservice or on Facebook and Instagram at LitservicePodcast. This is our last show for the year, but we'll be back in January to critique more of your work. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next year.